This is a Rook Media Series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 6. Welcome to the Contemporary History of Iran, a series from Rook Media. This is part six, the story of Kehan. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Our aim with this series is to explore the events, personalities, and issues that have shaped modern Iran. We want to do this as much as possible through a non-traditional lens, through snapshots of change and using alternative voices or angles. This series is mostly in English and will feature a new episode posted every Thursday across our Rook Media platforms. We will post subtitled excerpts with Farsi Zirnavis on our YouTube and Instagram sites. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms and we invite you to check out parts one through five of this series that have already been posted. The Contemporary History of Iran is brought to you in part by Yazdani Law Group. YLG is one of the largest Iranian-Canadian immigration law firms. Their mission, rooted in the leadership of founder Afshin Yazdani, is built on continuously striving to innovate and introduce new immigration pathways for their clients. Afshin began his career as a lawyer and law professor in Iran, and his company has now made it their goal to provide the best, simplest, least risky, and most inexpensive way to immigrate to Canada. YLG has an impressive track record, hundreds of applications from Iran successfully processed every year. They are at YLGPC on Instagram. That is Yazdani Law Group. All right, let's get started. Here now is the Contemporary History of Iran, Part 6. The story of modern Iran in the 20th century and forward could hardly be told without mention of a media source that provided a national spine of news distribution and opinion from the 1940s until the revolution of 1979. That is, a newspaper that grew to become, at its zenith, the biggest name of its kind in the Middle East and a trusted international source of information about Iran under the Pahlavi dynasty, Kehan. Of course, after the 1979 revolution, a daily newspaper that had become identified for its powerful voice and also support for the monarchy morphed into a journal that is now an organ of the Islamic Republic. But just how much impact did Kehan have at its peak? And how did this news institution that's very name means universe come to be? And how did it navigate editorial autonomy whilst being funded? by the Shah. 
There are few people better anywhere in the world to tell us the story of Kay Hahn than my feature guest today, who is a journalist, political analyst, author, and was the executive editor-in-chief of the daily newspaper Kay Hahn in Iran from 1972 to 1979. Amir Tahiri has published numerous books, has written for numerous publications, and has also been editor-in-chief of Jeune Afrique, the Middle East correspondent for the London Sunday Times, and has written for the Pakistan Daily Times, the Daily Telegraph, the Guardian, and the Daily Mail. His columns are published by newspapers across the world, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Newsday, and the Washington Post, to name just a few. And he has been a regular presence as an expert on Iranian affairs, everywhere from BBC to CNN, and has interviewed many world political leaders, including Presidents Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, as well as King Faisal, Mikhail Gorbachev, Anwar Sadat, Indira Gandhi, and Helmut Kohl. But it was his time as the man calling shots at Kahan in the 1970s that has left an indelible impression on Iranian history. Right now, Amir Tahiri joins me from Paris, France today. Hello, sir. Hello to you. It's good to have you on this program. I thank you very much for doing this. Pleasure is mine. You know, I, I've been looking forward to having you on and exploring the entire story of this storied newspaper, Kahan. If we may, let me start with a very general question, just to, to knock things off here. And, and that is, given that you were so intimately involved with this publication, serving as chief editor through the 1970s, when you enter a conversation like this one, say, is it with pride about what Cahan was at its peak? Is it with nostalgia for the exciting years when you were involved? Or is it with heartbreak that it morphed into something post-revolution that is quite different from what it's been? Well, it's not uh, with heartbreak because I'm not a sentimental person, uh, nor is it nostalgia because nostalgia is the opiate of the defeated in history. And I don't think... Uh, uh, the side uh, I represented in Iran is defeated in Iranian history. So it is, uh, uh, how shall I say, you know, it's uh, a mixture of pride and regret that I remember uh, those days. Oh, an interesting and informative answer. I expected nothing less to kick this off. Let's start at the beginning, exactly 80 years ago. The idea of founding a daily newspaper that was friendly to the monarchy, was pitched after the abdication of Reza Shah in 1941 by Princess Ashraf Pahlavi. What did she hope to accomplish? Well, you know, the, uh, at that time, Iran was under uh, occupation by uh, the Soviet Union and the Great Britain during the Second World War. The Americans joined them uh, a year later. But uh, all the newspapers, and in fact, all publications in Iran, were controlled by a joint committee set up by the Soviet and British embassies. But there was no uh, independent uh, newspapers in Iran. And, uh, of course, uh, the Shah, uh, the young Shah, was at that time not very powerful, uh, let's remember, um, was looking you know, for uh, an outlet to be able to communicate with the Iranian people. So the idea of a newspaper uh, came up at that time, uh, uh, Dr. Ms. Mustafa Mesmazadeh, one of the students who had been sent by Reza Shah to study in Europe, had just come back, was professor at the Tehran Law School. 
he uh, was uh, in the, if you like, in the entourage of uh, Princess Ashraf and uh, volunteered to uh, study the project and see whether a newspaper could be uh, set up. So it took some time, and in the end, uh, it was approved. And Kayhan was, uh, in fact, initially financed by a, a personal grant from the Shah himself, from the young Shah at that time. Of course, uh, Ms. Fazadeh. Later, um, remember that he had to sell uh, his own beloved American car as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, on top of that, um, the money was there, so the newspaper started. Hey, let me come back to the funding of Kahan. But it, Princess Ashraf later would write that she saw Kahan as an opportunity to mobilize popular support for her twin brother, for the Shah in, in the 1940s. Was it effective? Uh, well, you know, Kahan. Uh, uh, had a rather slow start because for the first year or two it couldn't sell more than 2,000 copies distributed by Dr. Meswaza, these students at the law school uh, because, you know, the, the big problem in Iran was distribution. You know, Iran is a huge country and uh, at that time uh, they didn't have uh, enough uh, means of communication like trains, uh, airports and so on. So uh, the newspaper had to to be carried a day or two later, you know, to big cities. And of course, you know, uh, the 400 or 500 smaller cities uh, never received the newspaper. So uh, the the main focus at that time was Tehran. And Tehran was in in a a country like Iran, which was uh, over-centralized, was very important. And even within Tehran, uh, the audience was a small uh, but growing uh, middle class, and even within that middle class, a small but growing uh, intellectual uh, uh, group that was uh, taking shape, uh, shaping the opinion, uh, and, and so on. And uh, on the other hand, of course, you had to deal with uh, rules and regulations uh, set by occupation forces which, uh, you know, uh, they, they were against any uh, show of uh, criticism of Iran's occupation or uh, what they um, uh, they could interpret as sympathy for the Nazi Germany or for the Axis as a whole and so on. It was a very difficult uh, beginning. You know, you mentioned Dr. Mespazadeh. Um, the co-founders of Kehan, Mustafa Mespazadeh and uh, Abdul Rahman Faramarzi, both had backgrounds in law. I found that curious. I mean, is is that significant in terms of establishing a newspaper with an independent voice in the 1940s in Iran? Should we take the fact that they were both coming out of the law field as uh, meaning something? Yeah, yes, but, you know, they, they were uh, in different ways because Ms. Fazadeh never uh, practiced law. He was a professor of law and uh, you know, had written textbooks and so on, whereas Faramazi was uh, an advocate. You know, he was... Uh, uh, lawyer would go to court, you know, for uh, on behalf of his clients and so on. And he was a magnetic speaker, whereas Ms. Wazadeh was not. Faramazi um, was a writer, a great uh, writer, you know, much admired by people. Ms. Wazadeh was not. Ms. Wazadeh was the brain, you know, in uh, business and managerial side of the enterprise. But that uh, in the beginning, he had to be introduced as the editor, whereas Faramazi um, uh, was uh, introduced as the publisher. The reason was that Ms. Mazadi was not old enough to obtain a license as a publisher. Hmm. But when, you know, he uh, became older, you know, they switched uh, roles. 
So Wait, uh, how old? Had, how old do you have to be to be a publisher? <laughs> well, you had to be uh, over thirty uh, at that time. It was, it was just a few months before that. Wow, these and, were uh, young guys. Yes, he was a young guy. He was just back, you know, was, uh, a year or two before from uh, France. But another thing is that both of them came from southern Iran, from the province of Fars, and they were very born in uh, nearby villages. So, you know, they had a lot of things uh, in, in common. So why would Princess Ashraf go to them? Well, because uh, Princess Ashraf tried uh, others as well, but, you know, uh, she found them, uh, I don't know, more enthusiastic, more reliable, uh, and so on. And especially that, you know, neither of them uh, were linked to the uh, big uh, aristocratic uh, families of the previous uh, dynasty, you know, the Qajars. And uh, neither of them uh, had any relations with the occupation forces. You know, both of them were uh, patriotic uh, in, in sentiment. Uh, so I think all the all these counted. I want to ask you, um, Amirjan, about editorial independence from from the outset. I mean, you've worked with enough prestigious newspapers, media outlets around the world to know how important that is. What were what were the expectations around the editorial line? I mean, early on, the newspaper receives financial support from Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, the Shah. How, how did that impact editorial autonomy? Well, they, they, don't forget the, the context at that time. Uh, uh, you cannot think of um, a totally neutral uh, newspaper in a country under occupation. And then uh, a few years later, uh, Stalin trying to annex parts of northwestern Iran, you know, the Azerbaijan and Kurdistan uh, business. And, uh, uh, of course, Kehan was campaigning against that. And this is why Kehan became Kehan, you know, as the standard bearer of, of Iranian unity and uh, demanding the withdrawal of uh, foreign occupation forces and so on. So this nationalist discourse, of course, was not uh, neutral. And of course, uh, uh, Kehan would not uh, uh, use the propaganda set out by the British and uh, Soviet embassies, uh, as uh, uh, did the newspapers published, for example, by the uh, Today Party, which had seven daily newspapers to start with while uh, the British Embassy had uh, its own three uh, daily newspapers. So, you know, the, uh, it was a partisan atmosphere, and in that partisan atmosphere, uh, editorial uh, neutrality or uh, impartiality, as we, we knew it much later, uh, wasn't really discussed. You know, you would do uh, whatever was necessary uh, for the cause, of course, short of uh, misleading people, short of telling lies, and, and so on. I, I had read somewhere that Mesbazadeh at first doesn't want to take the Shah's money, and I wondered if that was based on this idea of independence, or, or was that just sort of some form of taruf? <laughs> well, I think it was uh, uh, more or less taruf, but you know, Mesbazadeh told me later that uh, when Kehan started to make money, he offered to pay back the Shah, and the Shah refused. Hmm. You know, he said, uh, oh, for, uh, just consider it as a gift. But, uh, you know, I can tell you that the Shah really never, you know, I, I don't know about the early days, but uh, whenever uh, I was in charge, either or even whenever I was just a reporter or writer for Khan International, uh, the Shah on very, very few occasions uh, uh, intervened by uh, giving us his idea or opinion 
I could tell you some, some examples later if you like. Yeah, to. I want to get into that because that's very interesting to me. Uh, first, just let's just weave our way through. I mean, it, it, so 1941, the idea is hatched by Princess Ashraf. Kehans begins in 42. About yeah. 10 years later, it's the rise of Mossadegh in the early 1950s and then his subsequent ousting. H- how did that affect Kehan, that period? Well, Kehan uh, supported the oil nationalization movement from the beginning. Don't forget that uh, the oil nationalization bill was passed by the majlis, you know, by the parliament, the, uh, the National Assembly, uh, before Mossadegh became uh, prime minister. And Mossadegh was not a member of that parliament either. Whereas uh, Farah Marzi was, um, if you like, the editor or the chief writer of Kehan was a member. So, you know, the, from the beginning, they, they supported the oil nationalization. Then the parliament suggested uh, Mossadegh as prime minister to carry out the oil nationalization act. And the Shah agreed, so Mossadegh became uh, prime minister to carry out an act or a law that uh, in the shaping of which he had played no role. So uh, Kehan, of course, uh, supported it right right to the end. Uh, That was the first uh, Mossadegh government. In the second uh, Mossadegh government, um, the Shah, you know, dismissed Mossadegh, uh, appointed Qawam, and then brought back Mossadegh for a second time. Kehan was less uh, enthusiastic about Mossadegh because uh, the newspaper was beginning to realize that uh, Mossadegh was a systematic naysayer and was uh, leading the country through economic crisis, you know, uh, possibly even war and so on. And uh, there were dangers, you know, on the, on the horizon of another uh, Soviet move against Iran. So all these things uh, uh, led to a cooling down of relations between uh, Kehan and Mossadegh in his second term as prime minister. Hmm. We've already heard now that, that, that a couple of different opinions about Mossadegh in this series. I, I suspect we'll hear more as we continue doing episodes. What what, what was Kehan's official position on the ousting of Mossadegh in 1953? Well, Kehan, I mean, they could not uh, support it, uh, uh, if you like, for a long time because the whole crisis uh, or interregnum was just a few days. Hmm. So, uh, and in that at that time. Uh, Mossadegh's opponents, uh, who were uh, at that time led by uh, Brigadier General Zahedi, who was later appointed as Prime Minister by the Shah, uh, produced their own newspaper, which was called the Poste Tehran. So uh, there was uh, a new government uh, taking shape that didn't need Kehan uh, at that time. Right. You know, as we get into the 1950s, um, it's just before the real big growth and heyday of Kehan, but there's basically, there begins to be two big kids in, in town in terms of the, uh, or in the country, in terms of independent newspapers. There's Kehan and there's Etelat. And from what I understand, in the 50s, there was fierce competition between them. What, what How did that manifest itself? Well, uh, you know, the, the first of all, you know, there, there were uh, two newspapers with different styles, you know. Uh, the lot was uh, trying to be uh, an official establishment uh, newspaper that had uh, very famous uh, older writers, whereas Kehan was a newspaper of a younger generation of writers, more open, you know, to new ideas. 
um, less conservative in uh, social matters, in uh, cultural matters. You know, there was a whole range of things. But uh, what Kehan did that Etilad did not do, and that is really thanks to Ms. Mazadeh as far as Kehan is concerned, Kehan started to set up uh, a vast network of distribution, first mm-hmm. in Tehran and then throughout the country. And this was really the thing that uh, enabled Kehan to become a mass circulation uh, uh, newspaper. Of course, Etelat uh, tried to imitate it 10 years later, but uh, by the time you know they came uh, into the game, uh, Kehan was uh, far ahead of them. Another thing was that Kehan, uh, again, thanks to Ms. Wazadeh, went for um, modern technology, better printing uh, matters from material from uh, Germany, which Kehan later used, for example, to publish uh, half of the textbooks in Iran and make a lot of money in that way. Uh, again, uh, Talat uh, was a bit late in, in doing that, or Kehan was, um, uh, if you like, in the vanguard of modern technology. For example, we computerized our typesetting and so on uh, 10 years before New York Times or Washington Post. Mm. Did, you know, in fact, we were one of the three, uh, first three newspapers in the world with uh, Nottingham Post and the, and the newspaper in Mannheim in Germany uh, to do that. So, you know, the, there was always uh, uh, an image, of Kehan's image was one of uh, modern, forward-looking, adventurous, risk-taking, uh, open newspaper. At a lot appeared uh, sort of old, uh, cautious, uh, conservative, you know, unsure of itself, and so on. Of course, you know, uh, I exaggerate a bit because uh, <laughs> lot had uh, many good writers too, and they did a lot of good, uh, good uh, stories as well. But, you know, in this competition, uh, well, after the first 10 years, uh, lot had uh, to accept its uh, position as the uh, number two. After the that. first 10 years, of course, yeah. in the, in the uh, I mean, after after the 1950s and that fierce yeah. competition we talked about, in the 60s, Cajon uh, famously becomes a newspaper group, um, and it expands. I mean, in the in the parlance of the 21st century, we would say it scales. It scales into. Yeah. Big, what did becoming a newspaper group mean for the influence of Cajon? Well, you know, it means that it it covered, uh, in fact, uh, the, the whole uh, market for uh, media at that time, uh, because you know the television was not very important yet, and the radio was a state monopoly. So, you know, by um, uh, Kayon, by producing uh, weekly newspaper, uh, weekly magazine, Zanerus for Women, found an entirely new uh, audience for uh, uh, children, you know, Kayon Abacha also found a huge uh, uh, audience for itself. Kayon Varzeshi for the sports, which was very important as well. Kayon International in English language, which was really a high quality. Um, English language newspaper, and you know, we, we won uh, uh, the uh, prize of uh, the best English language newspaper in a non English speaking country five times uh, with Khan uh, International. And also, uh, uh, finally, we published also, uh, if you like, a free newspaper called Ruzeno for the 
newly literate Iranians. I want to ask about all that, but but so 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 in the sixties, it's becoming it's becoming this behemoth. It's becoming this powerful organ. First of yeah. all, tell me about uh, because I would have uh, I wouldn't know anything about I would, didn't grow up in Iran. Tell me about Kehan Ali. Uh, Kehan Hawaii. No, no, Kehan Ali. It was the it was the area. I think it was ah, called yes. Kehan Ali, where all the the buildings were, where where it was all. It sounds yes, like it, it was, was like a, uh, almost like a movie studio set or something, you know. Uh, yes, it, uh, you know it is. It was really in the center of uh, Tehran, near uh, the foreign ministry, near the Lalezar uh, suite, which um, was the center of uh, theaters like Broadway in New York, you know. And uh, near the Sepah Square, which was the central square uh, in Tehran, uh, originally it was called uh, Kuche Atabak or Atabak Ali, but you know, because of all these uh, Kehan uh, branches uh, being set up there, it uh, came to be known as Kuche Kehan or Kuche Kehan Ali, a kind of uh, Iranian or Tehran fleet street, you know, like in, uh, in London. Right. Right, yeah. you know, just picking up on and and closing the envelope on that competition between Kehan and Etelahat. There's an interesting development by the '60s and '70s in that these two major newspapers not only observe a détente, but they end up working together. How did Kehan and Etelahat come to cooperate from 1961 through to '79? Well, you know, in the a number of ways uh, uh, this cooperation was uh, necessary. You know, for example, in uh, negotiating with uh, uh, airlines, with uh, the railway companies, and so on, to distribute the newspaper was very important. And also uh, to uh, stand up to the government, because uh, you know the the government in Iran, because of the nature of the regime and this organization, was a, ma- a major source of information in all domains. So um, it was important to have a modus vivendi with them so that um, they couldn't ask too much from us and we couldn't ask too much from them. So they they did. And in uh, many cases, of course, uh, to cover big events, uh, you really had no other uh, um, media representatives than uh, Kehan and Etelat. Sometimes, you know, the a parse news agency, which was government-owned, also had a reporter. So, um, the, the, in the in the political field, also both uh, newspapers um, supported the reforms that the Shah had launched: uh, vote for women, equality of men and women, land reform, uh, participation of workers in the ownership of uh, companies nationalization of uh, natural resources, the setting up of an environmental agency, all these things, uh, most newspapers uh, supported them. There was, if you like, a national consensus on uh, these issues. So, I mean, media today is... Uh, so doggy, well, not just today. I mean, it's always been doggy dog, you know, who can get the story first, who can put out the headline first. Uh, if it bleeds, it leads, all of that. Are you saying that even by the time you're, say, editor at Cajon, that you would literally get on the phone with the editor of Etelad and, and, and actually cooperate, not see them as the competition? No, no, we saw them as the competition, but I told you the areas of... Uh, Consensus, but of course we were competitions. We, you know, we tried to scoop them all the time, and most of the time, 
be succeeded uh, in, in different uh, ways. Uh, but you know, the, it was not. Uh, it's not in the, or at least uh, I can't say about now. But in those days, uh, uh, Iranians did not hate each other as much as uh, they do now. Uh, or as, uh, for example, uh, it is fashionable in the United States. You know, the hate I see yeah. in uh, Western uh, societies, for example, in France. You know, the hate they have for each other is, for me, it is unbelievable. In Iran. Uh, we didn't have that kind of hate. You know, we competed against each other, but in the end, uh, we were one of my best friends, for example, uh, was uh, the political uh, uh, editor of uh, Etelat. Uh, when we were both uh, junior reporters, you know, we traveled together uh, a lot of times. Uh, I liked uh, uh, Senator Masoudi, the owner of Etelat, a lot, you know, because he was a genuine journalist, now, unlike Ms. Wazadeh, who was not interested in... Uh, uh, journalism as such, you know, to do it himself. Uh, but uh, uh, Masoudi, you know, used to travel as a reporter, uh, go to press conferences, and continue, and although he was in his 70s, uh, continued as a reporter. So it was really, uh, uh, how shall I say, honest competition, but without uh, malice. So at its peak, Amir John, if you can put it into words. I mean, how powerful a voice and institution was the Kehan Publishing Group? It, it became Iran's most widely read and circulated broadsheet. It was also distributed internationally to more than 37 countries. Was there anything in the Middle East that could compare? Uh, not at all. You know, we, we were the biggest uh, media group, uh, I think, between uh, Europe and Japan. You know, in terms of uh, uh, annual turnover of publication, the variety of uh, uh, publications we had. We even published, you know, the first uh, uh, magazine on computer, you know, in the uh, between, again, uh, Europe and, and Japan called Iran Computer, and of which I was uh, president, you know, of the editorial board. So, uh, no, you know, uh, I think uh, the... Uh, there was a lot of opportunity. Iran was uh, on the up and up. Uh, it was a peaceful country, you know, around us. We had uh, so many Arab-Israeli wars, Indo-Pakistani wars, uh, chaos in Afghanistan, uh, assassinations in Arabia, the troubles in the Soviet Union, uh, Chinese-American uh, clashes. And again, today we have them in those days. You know, and Iran was uh, really a peaceful uh, land, and uh, Kehan was uh, um, enjoying, you know, the economic boom because we had uh, more and more uh, advertisements. You know, sometimes we produced the newspaper in 48 pages, you know, and we had um, uh, eight or ten pages of even small ads. So, you know, it was uh, really the economic boom and the massive and fast uh, increase in the number of literate people who also had the money to buy the newspaper, they were all, I mean, uh, it was a cakewalk, if, if you like. You know, we were not geniuses or heroes, but we were at a lucky time in Iranian history. Let me ask you about the international audience and, and then the domestic one. I mean, when we talk about uh, Kehan being distributed, this again is at its peak in the, the 70s when you're there as editor, uh, to more than 37 countries, who, who, who was the audience? Were these Iranians living in the diaspora or was there this much keen interest from non-Iranians in reading uh, an Iranian, Iran-based newspaper? 
Well, I think 90% of our readers were non-Iranians because Iranians, you know, did not immigrate in those days. You know, uh, uh, in fact, Iranians uh, had never been among uh, big immigrating uh, uh, people. For example, you know, when I was a student in London, the total number of uh, Iranians in Great Britain was around 200, and uh, most of them were students who later uh, went back. But, you know, we had... uh, 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 trade agreements and uh, uh, joint uh, business and uh, uh, commercial uh, chambers of commerce and things like that with 32 countries. So they were all interested in uh, knowing what is going on uh, in Iran. We had uh, military agreements with 17 countries, so they were also uh, interested uh, uh, in what was going in Iran. So I think most of our uh, readers uh, were non-Iranians, especially, you know, for our English language uh, newspaper, the Khan uh, International, I think more than 80% were uh, non-Iranians. There is an asterisk there that among the Iranians was my dad, because <laughs> we were in London, we were in England, uh, and I was a very little kid, of course, in the 1970s. But I remember my dad getting uh, the version that was, was it the weekly version that would come on a very, very beautiful light uh, light paper, like kind of a, a thin paper that was... Yes, that was Kehane uh, Hawaii, a weekly uh, digest or... Uh, uh, you know, choice material from the Daily uh, Kehan, edited by uh, Dr. Hossein Adl. And uh, it was on thin paper because it was cheaper, you know, to post it like that. So uh, it was very, very popular uh, throughout uh, the world. Yeah, I, re- I, I remember thinking that paper was actually quite cool. I didn't know, <laughs> I didn't know what it was. Let me ask you about the audience or the, the readership inside Iran, because as you've talked about, by the 70s, it's a publishing group. There's the daily newspaper, there's Zaniruz, there's Kehan Abachaha. There's also Kehan's school of journalism that have been established. How deep was the impact Kehan was having on ordinary Iranian society? I mean, let's exempt the the elites in Tehran or the moneyed folks or the what you know when we really get into the Iranian society how much impact was Kehan having by that point well I think it had a great impact you know uh, first of all by informing uh, more and more Iranians you know uh, our estimate at that time was that the daily Kehan had uh, a total readership of between uh, five and six million people which means you know one newspaper could be read by many people. So, uh, and for the first time, uh, we, we, we had a presence in uh, all the 400, 500 uh, uh, Shahrestan or small towns uh, in Iran. So many of them had never seen uh, a media man, but we had the stringers or uh, even resident reporters in, in all of them. Then we started producing... Uh, Uh, local editions. You know, we had, uh, towards the end, we had uh, 14 uh, local editions out of, you know, we we had uh, about 25 provinces. We couldn't uh, cover all of them, but 14 of them, we had special editions for them, which uh, put emphasis on local news. uh, So there there would be like a a Mashad Kehan and a Shiraz Kehan? Yes, it was different. For example, in Abadan, you know, the front page would be different from Tehran or In Tabriz, it would be uh, different. And, uh, you know, I, I realized power of the newspaper uh, on a number of occasions uh, personally, which uh, surprised me. For example, you know, when 
uh, all the Iranian ports were clogged because of you know too many too much import and export and things like that. Uh, Ms. Wazadeh told me that uh, we are going to run out of newsprint. So what are we going to do and so on? I said, what would you expect me to do? He said, if you could uh, ask the Minister of Transport to uh, allow the ships that are bringing us uh, uh, newsprint from, uh, I don't know, Finland (laughs) and Sweden uh, to come forward, you know, instead of waiting 45 days, it would be helpful. So I telephoned the a minister, I had never met him, and even to this day, I've never met him. You know, Mr. Salehi said, Salam Alek, etc. And I said, uh, This is what we want. He said, Okay, we do it. And he did it immediately. <laughs> so I suddenly said, oh, It is like magic. It happened. <laughs> then uh, another example was um, Ayatollah Shariat Madari, who was a grand Ayatollah, uh, later defrocked by yes. Mr. Khomeini. I had met him many times, you know, and uh, so he telephoned me and he said uh, they want to uh, send my son-in-law from Rezaieh, which is now called Urumiye, to Mashhad. It will ruin his life. He's head of agriculture in um, western Azerbaijan. Uh, can you do something that he stays there? So I telephoned the Minister of Agriculture, uh, Mr. Rouhani. This one, I knew him. He was a friend. And I said, can you do that? He said, yes. And he me- immediately did it. You know, so uh, it showed that, you know, if you wanted to exercise influence, you could uh, do it very easily. There were many examples of this, but of course, you know, I, I never uh, misused them for personal uh, profit or uh, interest or, or things like that. No one wants to get on the wrong side of the editor of the biggest newspaper in the country. <laughs> yes, but what I'm saying is that uh, it was not uh, me as a person, but it was the power of uh, uh, the newspaper that... Uh, or, you know, suddenly you know, they would telephone me one day, they telephoned me from Dallas and said, uh, the, the Mr. Uh, Abdulazim Valian, the Minister of Cooperatives, is downstairs and he wants to come and see you. So, uh, shall we let him in? I said, okay, let him in. So he came up. You know, I'm glad you um, went a little personal there, because if you'll indulge me, I want to ask about you personally um, and your story in all this, because it, you're you're forever tied to Kehon, obviously. I mean, and, and interestingly, you were born at the same time as Kehon yeah. uh, uh, in the 19, early 1940s. What what did the newspaper mean to you before you became uh, one of the the staff? I mean, as you're a kid in the 1950s and 60s, what were your your impressions? You clearly had a bug for journalism. What were your impressions of Cahon then? Well, you know, the bug uh, for journalism, I developed it uh, in childhood. You know, it was, uh, uh, you know, the time of oil nationalization, you know, and everybody was talking uh, politics and so on. And I was reading uh, many newspapers, you know, uh, every day. So um, uh, one day I participated in... uh, a competition set up by Tehran Musavar magazine, it was a weekly magazine, said, you know, write about the, the strangest man you have seen in your life. So I wrote uh, something, I sent it to, to them, and uh, it won the first prize, which was six months uh, free uh, magazines. You know, I was 10 years old. At what that what time. was the thing? What was the strangest thing? The strangest man was a newspaper seller called Nasser Faradi. <laughs> Uh, in Ahwaz, I was in Ahwaz at that time, you know, uh-huh. they, because I was born there. And uh, so, uh, anyway, they 
editor of the magazine, uh, Mr. Walla, sent me a personal letter. They didn't know that I'm a child. <laughs> you know, and uh, uh, so, you know, I, I, my morale was boosted uh, a great deal. Then, you know, when we came to Tehran, um, I became uh, editor of our uh, secondary school magazine called Sepide Hadaf. I was 13 years old at that time. And then from the age of 15, I uh, became a reporter for Roshan Fekr magazine, which was a, an intellectual uh, magazine. And I had the great uh, luck of uh, working under um, Majid Dawami, who was the editor and who really uh, trained me. Then, you know, uh, three years later, I, I was sent to England, you know, to boarding school and university and so on. But from there, I uh, continued the uh, a bit of journalism by doing a, a book review uh, program weekly for the Persian language, uh, BBC radio. So, but when, uh, when I came back to Iran, I, I did not want to um, go into journalism. I wanted to join our diplomatic service, but I found out that because I had a French wife, I couldn't do that. You know, they had passed a law that if you have a French uh, husband or wife or foreign husband or wife, you can't join the uh, foreign ministry. Mm. So um, in the interview, Mr. Zelli, who was a deputy foreign minister, told me the only thing you can do, because I had uh, passed their exam and I was uh, a good candidate, according to him. He said the best thing you can do is to divorce your wife, enter the ministry, and then remarry her. <laughs> wow. Uh, and, right. Thanks. And he, and, yeah, yeah. and he himself had a French wife. <laughs> right. So... But, you know, he had had it before the law, you know, because <laughs> he was matured. Anyway, I said, you know, I dare not say that to my wife. What am I going to do? <laughs> then Mr. Khodayar, who was now editor of the weekly Terra Musavar, said, why don't you write for me? So I started writing for him. Then he said, I can't pay you enough. Why don't you work for Kian International? So he introduced me to Ms. Mazadeh and uh, to get a better salary. So I started... Uh, in Kian International, and uh, within a month I was hooked there because, you know, by accident I had to, um, uh, I ran into a couple of scoops, you know, interviewing uh, Yutant, who was there for, uh, you know, the anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the 20th anniversary. There was a conference of Iranologists, and because I spoke several languages, I could interview all of them. So. You know, then uh, they wouldn't let me go in Kehan, and uh, the Zarnegar, who was Mr. Zarnegar, who was editor of Kehan International, uh, doubled my salary and said, yes, stay, so I stayed. Wow, what a, what a journey you've had. Um, it's, it's true. I've, I've talked to you for hours about this. Uh, everything you're saying, I want to get go deep on. But so when you become executive editor, is that Bespozadeh hiring you? Is he the one who says... You've got the gig. You're you're going to be editor in chief. Uh, yes, you know he started that uh, uh, a year before that. Well, without telling me, you know he said, you know we have now this um, college of uh, journalism and media, and why don't you uh, uh, lead uh, the best students in the final year and prepare them to come and join Kehan? So he gave me uh, twelve uh, of their best students, uh, boys and girls. I was working in Kehan International at that time, but uh, uh, not in uh, Persian Kehan, although, you know, all my interviews and so on, I translated them also for Persian Kehan. So I started working with these young ones, sending them on assignments, 
um, teaching them a, a few things and, and so on. Uh, so uh, at the end of the year, uh, then later I realized that Ms. Fazadeh had a, an entirely new and young team uh, that could take over. So he told me the now the present editor is going to France uh, for a year to, I don't know, complete his studies and so on. Uh, why don't you come and spend some time in uh, Persian Kehan and uh, with the new team and so on? So I went there, and then one day he said, uh, I want you to edit the newspaper. So I thought, you know, like in, in the West, uh, uh, this means you are going to do this in three or six months' time. <laughs> but, you know, the following day, uh, the bell rings, uh, the driver of Kehan comes, he says, uh, I've come to pick you up, and they are waiting for you. So I went there, you know, the, the whole editorial board there, and so I said, now you are editor, and of course... Um, most of the editors there were older than I. Let me just clarify here. When I'm listening to this, yes. you know, when you say young team, I mean, this is 1972. You're only 30 years old at this point. It would be yes, but you know, the other people who came also were younger, you know, later. But I mean, if yeah, we were talking were, about the Washington Post or the Sunday Times mm-hmm. or something right now, and I said the editor, the new editor in chief is 30 years old, it would be quite outstanding. This was, were you. Were you intimidated uh, at the notion mm-hmm. of having to take on the, the no, hel- no, helm honestly, of the ship? You know, between, between the two of us, I, I never wanted to become editor because I loved reporting. You know, you can't imagine going into wars, revolutions. You know, I've seen fantastic things that, you know, people would kill for. You know, see so many interesting, you know, uh, smoke a cigarette with uh, Leonid Brezhnev and so on, you know. I, did, I didn't want to become editor, but, you know, now I was caught, you know, so I <laughs> I said, okay, uh, and I saw that they are all, uh, well, most of the editors were angry because, you know, I was parachuted, you know, somebody from the outside, from the English language newspaper and so on. So I asked Ms. Bazadeh to uh, take uh, all these editors to his own office instead of the editorial office and explain to them why he is doing that. So he was scared that, you know, the newspaper would not come out in uh, if he does that. But you know, if I said, if you trust me, do it. So he took all of them away. I came, you know, to the, to the various desk and talked to the second man. And human nature is that when you're a second man and you have an opportunity, you want to seize it. So that day, the newspaper came out much earlier and much better. And by the time uh, the editorial board came back, the printed newspaper was on their desks. So uh, the whole thing was wrapped up. So is is the short answer you you were not intimidated? Uh, so, no, it takes a lot to intimidate. Uh, it me. sounds like that's the case. Um, well, then on that note, um, were you ever intimidated? I mean, you, you sort of gave me a nod to this before, but intimidated about the role in terms of the, the Shah. Like, the, now it's the 1970s, so uh, Iran is not under occupation. Uh, how did you, what was your philosophy in terms of Kahan maintaining a balance in its reporting and analysis, that editorial autonomy we spoke of earlier, while dealing with the restrictions of the Pahlavi era uh, that we hear about in the 1970s? Well, you know, the, quite honestly, these uh, restrictions uh, have been widely exaggerated because, you know, the Shah was hated by uh, all leftist groups, you know, by many American Democrats who remembered that they had revolted against the British king and things like that. 
maintenant des des choses régime Uh, if it was dictatorial, you know, the uh, South Americans have a term for it, they call it dicta blanda, uh, as opposed to dictadura. Dictadura means hard dictatorship, dicta blanda means soft dictatorship. Uh, so the maximum, and I realized very quickly that the maximum they could do to me is just to fire me. Uh, so, uh, and that's not the end of the world. They are not going to kill me or jail me or... Um, I don't know, vilify me or, or whatever. Um, once that was understood, uh, you know, then uh, I began to uh, learn the ropes of the system. And once you uh, know the system, really, you know, you can do um, pretty much what you like. So, you know, uh, whatever I did in Kehan, I was responsible. Honestly, nobody forced me to do anything. Mm. You know, it's very easy for me to come and say, oh, yes, you know, I wanted to do this, but this regime didn't let me, mm. etc. You know, the first uh, uh, clash we had uh, with the Shah, that was even before uh, uh, I became editor, it was about Bahrain, you know, because Iran had had a claim on Bahrain for a long time, but the Shah had negotiated a scheme under which the Bahrainis would have a kind of referendum under UN and decide whether they want to rejoin Iran or become independent. Um, in Kehan, I wrote a number of editorials in Kehan International and then translated in uh, Persian Kehan, uh, supporting the attachment of Bahrain to Iran. So uh, the Shah called us in, you know, with a few uh, other writers and said, you know, uh, why do you want to create a permanent problem uh, between Iran and all the Arab countries? You know, we have, we'll have an, uh, uh, we'll become a hostage to very small issue. Whereas, uh, if Bahrain becomes independent, um, we'll abolish visas with them. We would allow uh, coming and goings, and uh, 10,000 Iranians will go and have uh, winter holiday homes there, and you know, it, uh, it would be the, the same as if it is part of Iran. So, you know, he did not order us, you know, to, uh, I don't know, be arrested or uh, flogged or whatever. Another uh, experience I had again before I became editor was, you know, I had written a review of a book that an Indian journalist had written about the Shah. And in it, in the Azerbaijan episode, uh, the Indian writer had minimized the role of Qawam, who had been prime minister. And I said, this is wrong, you know, and so on. So... Our editor, Zarnigar, was scared of publishing it. They sent it uh, to the court minister. court minister they showed it to the Shah, and the Shah said, no, that's uh, nothing to do with me. It is uh, uh, a book review, so it came back. So, you know, they, they, they exaggerate, you know, when they was it that, Was it uh, partly about, like... Uh, knowing which lines to not cross? I mean, when I've spoken to people like um, Omar Sarshar or Ahmed Sahavars on this show uh, as a reporter or as a cartoonist in those two cases, they, they would they talk about, you know, there's just certain things you know you wouldn't do. You wouldn't, I'm not going to do because you, you, you have to sort of stay within the boundaries. Is, was that true for you? But it, yeah, it is true for everybody, you know, in every walk of life. Of course, you know, uh, you, you you don't go in a crowded uh, theater and cry fire. What I'm saying is that uh, 
there was no uh, mechanism for censorship. Nobody told you, you know, what to write or what not to write. But you couldn't publish a newspaper with a headline saying, down with the Shah, right? No, but why should I do that? Because I didn't <laughs> believe it, you know. I, right, right, I right. But I, but I know you I mean, didn't want I didn't, to. But I I'm, didn't believe that <laughs> I think down with the Shah was a, a very bad slogan for Iran. Right. But presumably the New York Times could print that about Biden. That's that's I guess that's the delineating line of. Uh, yeah, but editor. they don't. You know, this is the whole point because this they don't. You know, have you seen uh, even you know uh, uh, down with Trump? They they don't that. You know, they hated Trump, but they didn't do that. Did uh, the Shah ever tell what in terms of not not censoring? But did they ever tell you? Did they give you directives to promote something like? Uh, We've got this new deal we're doing with this country. We we'll want you to not, write about not, it. Not at all. Not at all. You know, I, I interviewed the Shah twice. I'm the only Iranian journalist who had an exclusive one-to-one -one interview. Very long uh, interviews with Shah, 15,000 words uh, uh, each of them. You could see them still on the Internet. And you see the from the question and answer, it is not you know, I was not a, a servile journalist or a poodle of the Shah or, or anybody else, nor did he want me to do that, you know, and, you know, in uh, many world leaders I uh, interviewed uh, asked for uh, uh, the questions to be seen uh, before, whereas the Shah never asked uh, to see that. You know, the, uh, for example, I missed uh, an interview with uh, Fidel Castro because uh, their ambassador asked me to give him uh, the questions first. I refused Yes, you know, to, to do that. I love that you, you know, refused. <laughs> yeah, so uh, really, you know, the, uh, as I said, it's very easy. The Shah is dead. You know, he never did anything for me personally. Uh, I, I owe him nothing uh, personally except you know, as an, an Iranian. I could very easily say, yes, you know, I, I would have done miracles, but he didn't let me, you know. Well, like that. What do you, when you think back to that time, and before before things turn at the end of the seventies, we'll get to that. But what what were the greatest challenges as editor of this massive uh, newspaper group with a circulation of millions? Well, the first uh, challenge was, uh, you know, to adapt uh, the Persian language because the Persian language is a, a language that has been dominated or colonized, if you like, by poetry for over a thousand years. As soon as you start writing in Persian, it becomes poetry. And, you know, in journalism, I wanted a very pruned, you know, very lean, uh, non-poetical mm. uh, prose. So uh, I worked a lot on that. And the second thing was that we didn't have Persian words for many new words, you know, of, in technology, in science, in philosophy, and so on. You had to, to do uh, all that. Uh, then uh, introduce new uh, uh, fields of life because you know uh, all life doesn't consist of poetry or politics. You know we uh, had to introduce uh, sport, uh, science, you know uh, space science, uh, technology, and you know, all all these things, social issues, and so on. Um, uh, and the other challenge uh, was uh, uh, how to uh, uh, find the right mix. The right mix of ideas and opinions. For example, many of the uh, opponents of the Shah, we published them, you know, in in uh, Kehan, you know, from left, right, uh, uh, religious, non-religious, and so on. We published them, but you know, uh, after you know, talking to them and finding an understanding, a modus vivendi, if you like. 
so that you know the you are writing for Kehan, you are not writing uh, for an organ of the Communist Party or an organ of the Khomeini's Party, and that was also uh, that required a lot of uh, uh, background work. You know, I had to go and dine with people with whom I would never want to dine. You know or invite people to, to lunch in order to uh, achieve some consensus, you know, and be able to uh, open the political space a little bit uh, uh, further. It, so, it sounds like it, you, you ended up having that diplomatic position that you <laughs> that you wanted, uh, but just in a different form as this, uh, as this grand editor. Well, we, uh, we succeeded, you know, in, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, opening the political space a lot, you know, with titles like uh, Mr. Prime Minister, this is what people want, you know, or uh, big headline, what is wrong with us today, you know, mm-hmm. with, with Iran today. There was, you know, a forum for uh, uh, debate, but, you know, uh, unfortunately, the speed of uh, events in the past uh, year or so uh, did not allow this process, which was going on steadily, but uh, slowly to... Uh, uh, have its full course. So yeah, let me let's get into the the revolution in the late the late seventies. You know, I, I started the interview by asking if you if it's heartbreaking for you to talk about Kehan, and I ask you that partly because it's heartbreaking to hear the story of this this uh, newspaper group that's on the rise. That is this uh, massive, you know. Uh, uh, media ambassador for Iran around the world that effectively um, collapses uh, in terms of Kehan as we know it very quickly um, uh, when the revolution comes. When when was the writing really on the wall for Kehan as we had knew it? I mean, as the revolution was afoot, when was it clear that this was things were going to change. Was it effectively over when Mesbazadeh flees Iran in, in late 78 with his family? Is that when, was that the signal that it's over? Uh, no, because, you know, Mesbazadeh did not want to flee Iran. You know, he wanted to, to go to uh, uh, Iraq first. He wanted to go and meet uh, the Grand Ayatollahs uh, in Najaf to see what is going on. So uh, and from, from there, he went to Paris he was ordering, you know, a whole new bunch of uh, printing material shops and so on. And then suddenly the, uh, it coincided with the Shah leaving Iran. So he um, asked me, you know, to write a letter to uh, um, Prime Minister Bakhtiar, who had been appointed by the Shah, to say that uh, now we are going to support you and things like that. I advised him that it was useless to, to write uh, this letter because... Uh, nobody knew what was going on. Uh, nobody knew whether Bakhtiar would last or not. And then when Bakhtiar fell, he, he wanted to keep Kehan uh, intact, you know, as as a business and uh, as a newspaper group, not as an organ for any uh, right. uh, regime right. or government. So uh, uh, he negotiated with one of his friends, uh, Mr. Mahdian, who was... Uh, a famous merchant, you know, uh, number one in uh, uh, export, import in steel and uh, iron ore and so on, who was also close to Khomeini to uh, take over Kehan, buy Kehan, you know, and so on. So they signed uh, some agreements, you know, with the understanding that all this stuff would remain there, uh, and nobody would be fired, uh, there would be no change in uh, 
the papers, uh, the overall policies, and so on. Of course, you know, all of this was uh, uh, rather uh, fanciful. Right, right, right. Uh, But, you know, uh, Khomeini... But, but sorry, when when you're in, when uh, Mespazadeh goes to Iraq, and and, and so you're still holding the fort down in Tehran at Kehan, as we go into 1979, you're still there? Yes, you know, then in the meantime, we had, you know, the journalists strike, so the newspaper was uh, uh, closed. Before that, we had the military uh, coming, trying to take things over. You know, it was a period of chaos, you know, and the newspaper uh, was not uh, published regularly, you know, as as before. Now, all, all the newspapers were, uh, were in crisis at that time. But, you know, uh, what we uh, learned very quickly was... Um, that the new uh, regime, Mr. Khomeini and, uh, and his friends, uh, wanted everything. You know, they didn't want to negotiate. They didn't want any uh, compromise or, or consensus. That, uh, there was no point in uh, dealing with them. So many of us uh, decided that it's impossible to, to work you know, in these circumstances, and we had to go into exile. How did you, how did you deal with that? chaos of the time I personally i mean what how were you well you know during the revolution uh, of course you know i was in touch with uh, uh, all si- sides you know the military uh, commander of tehran you know general ovc and his entourage with the ayatollah talekhani who was on the khomeini side uh, with uh, mr bazargan who became khomeini's first prime minister dr sanjabi who became his foreign minister we succeeded you know uh, in avoiding uh, bloodshed on a number of occasions. For example, you know, a big demonstration that was uh, uh, supposed to take place for Ashura, uh, we negotiated that you know the demonstrators uh, will not go south of uh, the Shahrazad Street, which is in the, was in the center of Tehran, so that there would be no clash with the uh, military, you know, who wanted to control, so that there was no uh, clash and no killing, you know, and and so on. And also, even before, you know, the uh, crisis point had come, we had tried to find out uh, a recognizable leadership for this uh, revolt, if you like. And it was very difficult to find it because, you know, uh, at first we thought that uh, old communists were uh, in charge. They were not. They proved uh, to be nobodies. Then old Mossadegh, they were not. So, you know, um, they all lost in the end. You know, we were not yeah. the only losers. Yeah. Is there a moment when you, that you can think back to when you realized uh, this is over, I've got to get out of here? Was there, was there, is there a particular image in your mind of when that decision was made? Yes, you know, when, uh, for example, uh, Mr. Sanjabi, leader of the uh, National Front, telephoned me, said, I'm going to uh, France to see Mr. Khomeini and asked him to accept uh, the Constitution. So he went and uh, asked me to uh, get in touch with him through uh, one of his contacts in in Paris, Mr. Salamatian. But when I uh, telephoned, he said, no, I've agreed with uh, Ayatollah Khomeini that we should have an Islamic government and Islam is democracy and things like that. So I, I realized that you know, the whole thing wa- was lost. Yeah. Because, you know, the uh, two-day party also issued a statement uh, supporting uh, uh, the change of constitution and the all power to Khomeini. 
the newspaper wrote an editorial saying that we have seen Khomeini's picture in the moon and, and things like that. So uh, the, there was, you know, the Shah had, had left the country. There was no uh, the other side, you know, our, uh, yeah. like our side certainly didn't exist. Yeah. Because, you know, we thought our side is the side of the Constitution. Um, and, you know, were, they, you in, were you in touch with the Shah at all? Uh, no, at that time, no, because he was in right. Cairo. I, uh, later, I saw him in exile, but at that time, he was in uh, Egypt uh, in in these crucial uh, moments. But, you know, before he left, of course, you know, I saw him many times, you know, in the last two months, uh, because, you know, most of the grandees of the regime had left the country. Uh, there was nobody to see the Shah, so his... Uh, uh, protocol chief, Mr. Uh, Amir Aslan Afshar, would telephone and say, would you like to come and see His Majesty? So in these two months, you know, I saw the Shah more than I had seen him in the 10 years uh, previously. And how would you describe how he was? Well, he was uh, very sad. He was, uh, he had lost a lot of weight. Uh, he had uh, lots of medicine uh, brought to him. I, I didn't know what they were, you know, and, and pills of different colors. And he was uh, really like a broken-hearted uh, man, you know, who has been betrayed by the person he loved or by his uh, sweetheart who has betrayed him. And they ask, uh, why do they this to, to me? And uh, it was really a tragic... Uh, I've never seen him so downcast. Oh, and then you, when was the last time you saw him? You said you saw him in exile somewhere? Yes, in uh, New York uh, hospital, in, and, and there, uh, you know, uh, he didn't want to talk because he, he thought he was being taped by the Americans. So, you know, he said, uh, let's write things down, you know. So I had a piece of paper, and but it was not really a <coughs> substantial conversation because it was impossible. You know, uh, one thing I don't understand is why, why didn't this new Islamic regime simply shut Kahan down and start something new? Or at least why not rebrand it with a different name? I mean, to take it and still call it Kahan and then transform it into a conservative daily that would serve the regime's agenda. Why, why did they make that decision, do you think? Because they can't, uh, they have no creative power, you know. They, are, they have uh, destructive power. Even, you know, they haven't changed the layout of the newspaper. Even the, the, you know, pages assigned, for example, to editorials is the same. Pages assigned to, I don't know, foreign uh, news is the same. Uh, they have absolutely no imagination. You know, and uh, not, not only Kayan, they have taken the whole of Iran and uh, reduced it uh, to, I don't know what it is now. It is. It's it, a strange decision to... I mean, here's this journal that's been that's been famously of the previous era that they wouldn't. Uh, I mean, it's 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 not a lot of foresight, I guess, as you as you say that to kind of try and soldier on with it and just change the the editorial policy. And and then in 1980, Khomeini names Yazdi, Ibrahim Yazdi, uh, who was the short-lived foreign minister as the head of Kahan, which seems like a bizarre choice because I don't think Yazdi was a he was a pharmacist and cancer researcher, right? So uh, yes, but you know, it was not the only one because they don't care, you know, about uh, uh, professionalism. The, the whole thing was about uh, loyalty. Uh, Yazdi was appointed as editor. Mr. Hajse Javadi, who had been Khomeini's uh, justice minister, uh, played that role. Uh, Khatami, who later became president, uh, 
uh, also was appointed editor of Kayan for a while. And it was during his time, the only time that uh, they attacked me in Kayan, saying, you know, that, uh, I don't know, I'm uh, getting drunk in Paris and falling into the canals of Paris and things like that. Wow. You know, they yeah. look at, you know, who they appoint as ministers, who appoint as ambassadors, who appoint as, as uh, heads of the Atomic Energy Agency. I don't know um, what uh, the Greek calls uh, oclocracy or the opposite of meritocracy. In the 1990s, Hossein Shariat Badari becomes the editor-in-chief of Kehan, and for all intents and purposes, he's appointed by Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, and, and was is the latter's representative at the paper, which now seems closely linked to Iran's security apparatus. Kehan's circulation has dropped significantly since it's... Uh, adopted this new stance with the regime. What, what would you say its role has been in the last 30 years in Iran? Well, uh, you know, the role of Kehan as a whole in the past uh, uh, 30 years has been a mixed one. You know, uh, first of all, the name is still has some fascination for Iranians. You know, and, uh, you know for example, the Kehan published in London, you know, is not on a big scale, but it still, uh, you know, keeps the flame uh, uh, alive. Yes, Kehan London. I'll, I'll get into that, but I'm curious of what this Kehan that's out of Iran, in Iran, what that what that means to Iran, in your opinion, right now? Well, at the moment, uh, most Iranians uh, ignore uh, Kehan because it has a very small circulation. But, you know, uh, some, uh, including myself, they find it interesting because it gives you an insight into the thinking of uh, Mr. Khamenei and uh, his close entourage. You know, it's like uh, Al-Ahram in Egypt under Nasser or, uh, I don't know, Pravda in, under this, in the early days of Stalin and so on. You know, it is really bad journalism. Even as propaganda, it is uh, bad journalism. And it, it cannot attract the younger uh, Iranian journalists because we have very good Iranian journalists right now in Iran. And if given freedom, you know, they could produce uh, um, newspapers of acceptable standard. But the Kehan cannot attract them because of its um, ideological stance, because it is uh, really for uh, closing all doors rather than opening them. So uh, it is a loser on all sides. It has lost ad- advertising, it has lost uh, um, personnel, and it has lost uh, lead- readership. Tell me about Mr. Masbazadeh's decision to establish Kehan London in 1984. Well, uh, we first talked about it uh, in Paris because he was uh, in exile in Paris at that that time. And uh, the idea was that uh, uh, Dr. Semsar, who had been my predecessor as uh, uh, editor of Kehan, would edit uh, the Kehan in, in exile, if you like. But at that time, I was in London, you know, because I was working for the Sunday Times. So, Ms. Um, uh, they said, no, you know, in uh, Paris, uh, uh, it would be difficult because, you know, there are lots of uh, Arab magazines and newspapers published in in Paris, and uh, it, uh, it has, uh, their presence has attracted uh, a lot of attention. The French government uh, puts pressure on them, which is true. You know, when the French government wanted to 
make a deal uh, with an Arab country would put pressure on the Arab media in, in Paris. So London is a better choice. Uh, so we said, okay, and um, uh, Dr. Semsar uh, did not want to leave Paris because he had his uh, wine collection here, you know, his house here, and he was Francophone, you know, uh, French-speaking, not English-speaking, yes. and so on. So Beswadoze said, why don't you do it? So I said, I'm ready to do it, uh, if you like, initially, but I cannot uh, commit myself to to that on a long-term basis. He said, okay, so I launched... Uh, the London Cahon for a year and later uh, left it. You know, the, Mr. Vaziri took over uh, from me and continued. It has continued since then, you know, and is rather successful. I'm so grateful to get to talk to you as somebody who was, who not only knows the history of Cahon the last 80 years, but who was there and, and in a big way. Um, you know, we started this interview uh, uh and I asked you about pride, nostalgia, and heartbreak, and, and you said, um, not heartbreak, not nostalgia, pride and regret. Um, what's the regret part? Well, the, the biggest regret is, uh, you know, that I didn't get a chance to uh, train the next generation of Iranian journalists. You know, as I was uh, trained, you know, by Davami, uh, uh, by Khodayar, by Zarnegar, you know, and uh, others, and they really, because, uh, you know, I never believed in uh, learning journalism at school, and I was opposed to the creation of the journalism school by Kehan because I thought journalism should be uh, learned uh, on the job, and uh, uh, under the, uh, if you like, tutorship of one person. Unfortunately, uh, you know, I was really training this new generation. Of course, many of them are still there, you know, uh, working in Iran, or some of them are working in the Iranian media abroad. But, you know, this this is my uh, first and the biggest mistake that I couldn't do more. The second one was that um, I was using Kehan as an instrument for uh, opening the political space, which was really uh, going rather well. But again, you know, it stopped in its uh, tracks. Uh, and thirdly, the, I had a big project for uh, creating a branch uh, in Kehan to produce uh, inexpensive uh, books, you know, for mass circulation among the newly literate Iranians. You know, we already had uh, um, chosen 200 uh, titles, both, you know, translations and uh, locally produced with um, Hamid Enayat, Professor Hamid Enayat as our editor-in-chief. And this would have been really a big business, you know, uh, in, in, in every way, both financially and uh, uh, culturally and so on. The, this, this didn't happen either. So, of course, uh, but the biggest regret is that uh, I have to live outside Iran and uh, every day outside Iran uh, uh, I suffer because, you know, I loved Iran and I had a fantastic uh, uh, time there and I think... Uh, I, I thought myself blessed to be born Iranian, but uh, now I'm, I have to stay out of Iran. A final question for you on this story of Kehan. Um, you know, you, you've uh, written for and worked for dozens of prestigious international newspapers, the, the Times, The Guardian, The Daily Mail, The New York Times, Der Spiegel. I, I wonder 
when you reflect on it, um, would would Cajon in its heyday, how, how it would compare to those publications and what you believe the greatest asset was that we had in Cajon at its peak? Well, you know, the Cajon at its peak uh, was, you know, the forward-looking and growing uh, uh, newspaper. Uh, it was uh, full of energy, full of enthusiasm, which I haven't seen in, in other newspapers. Uh, at the same time, you know, it reflected uh, that unique chance in Iran, because for the first time in centuries, Iran was really on the ascendancy. And Cajon uh, was a symbol of that uh, uh, ascendancy. Do you... Um I half ask this hating myself for asking a question that is uh, inevitably sort of a cliche that we ask at the end of interviews, you know, when we're talking about this era in Iran. But um, do do you foresee a day where the Cajon that you knew could be resuscitated in Iran? Uh, Yes, definitely. I have uh, no doubt about it, you know. Uh, for several reasons, because, you know, the present uh, situation in Iran is a temporary situation. The present uh, system does not uh, look like uh, Iranians. Iranians are different. You know, I'm in daily contact with Iranians. I'm running a number of, uh, uh, if you like, uh, uh, classes on the Internet for uh, Iranians inside Iran. You know, university teachers, intellectuals, and, and so on. And uh, we have the manpower, you know, we have good journalists, we have uh, good writers, we have all that is uh, needed. You know, and in my experience, I've seen this uh, um, before, you know, for example, when I was a member of the executive board of International Press Institute, um, I did a survey of uh, uh, the Portuguese press under uh, Salazar, the dictatorship of Salazar. And uh, I saw that uh, immediately the uh, dictatorship ended, suddenly Portuguese press became like a normal uh, democratic European press. So the journalists were there. Then, you know, uh, again with the International Press Institute, we organized uh, a special uh, one-week course or seminar for Soviet journalists under uh, Gorbachev in Moscow with the uh, editor of the British paper, The Guardian, with the editor of uh, the Swedish newspaper, with uh, Christian O'Krant of uh, um, uh, French TV and so on. And uh, I gave a course about how to interview. And there, you know, we had uh, students from all the Warsaw Pact countries, the Soviet Union and its allies. And, you know, they all appeared to us as uh, dead journalists. Then the German, uh, the Berlin Wall fell, and suddenly all of them became really good journalists. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I met them later, you know, in on different occasions. So what I'm saying is that uh, my my hope is not. Uh, Don't count the folks out who are there yes, in yes, Iran right they, now. The, the, you know, I, because I read the, the Iranian press now. You know, I follow it. Um, apart from politics, which is banned, we have excellent writers. You know, on. Uh, culture, on on history, on uh, economy, on uh, social issues, and good book reviews. You know, it's uh, don't underestimate Iran. Amir Tahiri, I thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure is mine. Thank you. Khodafis. Khodafis. 
Amir Tahiri, a widely read journalist, political analyst, and author. He was the executive editor-in-chief of the daily newspaper K. Han in Iran from 1972 to 1979. Amir Tahiri joined us from Paris, France today. This is full time for the Rook Media Series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 6, brought to you in part by Yazdani Law Group, one of Canada's largest immigration law firms, YLGPC, on Instagram. Please check out our regular editions of Rook and all things related at rookmedia.com. That is our hub of all things, rookmedia.com, R-O-Q-E, media.com. Thanks to the amazing team who make Rook Media happen. Producer Susan, Ponce of the Artist, the fabulous Keon, Super Patty Sauce, Savvy Roham, Ahai Meritod, Captain Reza, and Groovy Shia. Thank you to all of you out there supporting us and sharing our content. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi and Mizun Bashim.